Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. The Unclaimed Property Division is holding unclaimed funds from medical bills, uncashed paychecks, savings accounts, and more. To see if you have unclaimed money, you can visit findmassmoney.gov. Regardless of family's ability to pay, shrinershospitalsforchildren.org slash Boston. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Mardrigan. Marjorie's had lunch. She didn't share hers with mine. I haven't had any. We are live from our GVH <laughs> studio at the Boston Public Library. Just want to get that in there. Okay. Is the diner Jim's still really a diner? No, not me. Speaking <laughs> of food, even if it only exists online, that's what some savvy restaurateurs who own multiple virtual restaurants that can only be frequented on Uber Eats, for example, think. And they are not alone, like they've done with other industries. The tech sector wants to disrupt food service. But is everybody better off for it? Joining us to talk about this, a payment problem at one of Jose Andres's restaurants, and more is food writer Corby Cummer. Corby's the executive director of the Food and Society Policy Program at the Aspen Institute, senior editor at The Atlantic, and a senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition, Science, and Policy. Hello there, Corby Cummer. Well, hello there. It is the first day of term at the Tufts Friedman School, and we're all very excited oh, about it. Oh, yeah. Back to school. Back, Back to school. school. So before we talk about, bit, huh? before we talk about any problems with, with, with payments to workers, Jose Andres is, is uh, down in the Bahamas, and we've seen on the CNN all morning these horrific pictures of destruction in the, in the Bahamas. He's down there again. He was in Puerto Rico to help people uh, with, with food. How does he do this? I mean, it looks like there's almost nothing left. And he has food there, and he's got going to make a kitchen. How, how does he do it? Well, it's all real. He manages to get on the ground and figure out who can help him make this, how to mobilize it. He's made it his shtick. He's this world humanitarian. I think all of us in the food world admire him unreservedly. He actually gets it done. He doesn't just grandstand, though there's grandstanding. You've been watching him on television all morning. I have. But he actually does it. He stays he, there long enough to execute against his idea. But does he bring the food from elsewhere to there, or is he looking for food in the Bahamas? I mean, he looks for food there, usually, and finds out what's there. He gets FEMA emergency relief if it's available. I don't know what the Bahamas, I don't know what the emergency system is there. And then he will try to get local on the ground workers to be able to deliver it and coordinate it. So after Puerto Rico, which is where he took his real long, months long stand to figure this out within US government regulations, um, he has been able to mobilize huge on the ground troops to get hundreds of meals served and delivered. I'm surprised that he gets FEMA money in light of the, I didn't know that, in light of the fact that he has obviously had his problems, including court with uh, the President of the United States. Oh, he did work within the system. Really? Big time in Puerto Rico, yeah. And by the way, speaking of uh, Puerto Rico and Bahamas, he was also serving food, if you recall, to the furloughed workers during the federal shutdown right, on in Washington, D.C. He is really unbelievable. Now, which almost broke my heart. I hate to be overly dramatic. I read the story while I was on vacation in the Washington Post about some he being sued, or at least one of his outlets being sued, at one of his restaurants for uh, wage fraud or some mm -hmm. such thing. His contention, which I hope is accurate, is that uh, it was just a technical snafu, some computer glitch. Is his defense credible or no? Yes, it's credible. But it shows that when you run a very big business, this is to do with Hudson Yards, a huge, Hudson Yards, right. unbelievably large development on the west side of Manhattan. Uh, in the Chelsea neighborhood, opened an enormous Spanish market. I think it is the market that was supposed to be 
uh, your late friend Tony Bourdain's market. Uh, he'd already oh, given that was it, the project that he'd was already his. given it up before he oh, died. I, didn't know I that. don't know why, but it wound up being managed and supervised huh. by Jose Andres and others, and it's now called the Mercado Little Spain. Um, it's like a big, giant, fabulous food hall modeled on Barcelona's um, Bocaria, which is this fabulous place mm -hmm. everybody has to go to around the Ramblas. Gotten rave reviews, including from Pete Wells of the New York Times, who said, I can't find a bad meal there. I'm a restaurant critic. We never say that. Mm -hmm. Okay, all that said, he's working in Manhattan for the first time. He has hundreds of workers, and he's not paying them according to the extremely arcane minimum wage and tipped minimum wage rules of New York. I don't absolve him. This happened to an employer. Uh, it happened to him, and he did it. But what's the it? There are very technical glitches in making good. There, what it shows is the flaws of the system. For example, the bartender who brought the original complaint with the help of a gotcha lawyer who specializes in recruiting people from big name restaurant groups, going after the big name restaurant groups and saying, this is a class action suit, I'm going to help you. He's notorious. He, I think, is the one who got um, Mario Batali and his partners to pay a $5 million settlement. He finds the highest profile targets he can. This was a disgruntled employer. But what is it she was doing? She was polishing silver and folding napkins called side work. Um, when she was on her shift, and if you do a certain amount of that, you're not eligible to share tips because it's not in front of a diner. Um, he was pooling tips and sharing them with barbacks, the people who do the work mm -hmm. in a bar but aren't actually in the face of the customer. That's illegal. So I think these are crazy. They're glitches in the tip system. But they are glitches, and she was saying, I wasn't getting enough work in front of customers, I wasn't getting the proper amount of tips, you were giving my money to other people. So we're talking to uh, Corby Cummer. Corby, when he was with us last time, humiliated himself when he <laughs> said <laughs> he spoke out against a foie gras, a gras ban. Where was that, in Chicago? I think you should keep going on foie gras. Where was it? Where was that, in Chicago? I can't even say it. It was both in Chicago and California. Okay, that was there. And you were in your bay, and if I could misstate your position, let Please me know. Please do. When Marjorie and I were saying we both supported it because of the disgusting way they force-feed these animals to get this foie gras or whatever. <laughs> I feel like that great line Say from... Say Jim. No, it sounds like marriage is what brings <laughs> us together. together. Exactly, that's uh, a princess. Gras means fat, fat. foie means liver, it's okay. fat and And liver. your defense was essentially, listen, it may not be great, but in the grand scheme of things, this is nothing compared to serious problems. Is that a fair statement? It sure is. Okay, so does that mean that now that New York City, which I assume would be almost a death blow to the industry should they ban this product. Uh, is and about to that product I can't remember how it's pronounced, but whatever it is, it's that thing, foie thing. Uh, uh, are, are you against that, or you're just saying it's not the biggest fish, so to speak, in the sea to be going for? Where are you on that? I just think it's crazy that there's a picture of hundreds of demonstrators saying, Ban cruel foie gras. Foie gras. Torture tucks and gras. ducks and geese. I can't even they say do torture. They do torture them. They can't even breathe. They get so That's huge. That's not true. It is true. I have been to the farms. I've watched them being fattened. It's gross. They do put they force feed them? They put a funnel into their mouth. How disgusting That's right. is that? You because support that? Because their gullets are incredibly wide and they're designed to have lots of food at one time. 
All that said, I don't care about the future of foie gras. It's fine with me to ban it, even though I feel very sorry for the really well-meaning farmers in New York State who are giving hundreds of people jobs. And they're saying, this is hundreds of families in imperiled farm country in upper New York State. How dare you take away the market? Well, if the public goes against it, fine, they'll find something else to farm. Okay, would you release your tax returns so we can see if you have any investment in the foie gras <laughs> industry? You know, uh, yes you know I'm no. just going to admit it on radio, I do. Of course I don't. I mean, I don't <laughs> care about the future of foie gras. But I do think choose your battles and battle for animal, for humane treatment of pigs and chickens. Okay. Corby Kummer, our food man, um, I want to know why the Popeye's chicken sandwich has merited an entire long story in The New Yorker, the headline of which is, the Popeye's chicken, ch chicken sandwich is here to save America. I can say chicken, actually. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. What say is Say chicken that? sandwich. Explain the background, though. This is, yeah. for those who were asleep for the last couple of weeks, August, this, this was this huge. Huge news. It so dominated the summer. This Sharks is, and chicken sandwich. Do we dare call this a nothing burger? This was entirely a social media story of a very cleverly uh, designed launch of a new product from Popeyes, saying, we have this great sandwich, but you can't get it. Even though it's the best thing in America, we're only having it in a couple of restaurants, you can't get it, but don't you want to get on a plane to Los Angeles, I think it was, <laughs> uh, where, where you can have it. A woman who was um, a clever uh, owner of Sweet Dixie Kitchen was smuggling in Popeye's chicken to put this sandwich on her menu. It became a thing. Instagram, social media, you gotta have Sweet Dixie Kitchens, Popeye's Spicy Tenders. Uh, one blogger was horrified to see a restaurant worker walk through the dining room carrying big Popeye's bags <laughs> and saying, you know, why don't they fry their own chicken? So the answer is, and here we are talking about it on radio, Popeye's is getting a ton of publicity for making good fried chicken that's better. One of the reasons that Helen Rossner, a clever blogger and food writer at The New Yorker, picked up on it is because it's a way of putting your thumb in the eye of Chick-fil-A, which is homophobic, bad, big, specializes in fried chicken, and saying, I think she said it's, uh, it's fried chicken without the homophobia. So this is great. It's a way of saying Popeyes does make better chicken. It is crispier. It's less fatty. It's a very superior product. And besides, we hate Chick-fil-A because we're politically correct. Okay, okay so uh, you know, despite the fact that you're saying this is still a, just a social media campaign, and I buy that, uh, it, Deborah First, you've praised fairly regularly on this show. Deborah First did a review of this thing, which I love, by the way, because most food critics like you sort of do more high-end stuff and don't do things like at fast food restaurants. You are so wrong. Thank Not you. Not that I have done it, but I'll tell you in a minute. I, she loved this thing. She thought it was absolutely, her opening line, you would have read this days ago, if only I could have gotten my hands on one. She chased it down, I forget which outlet it was, and she said the thing was terrific. Yeah, sure. Okay, so she, it's a social media thing. She's a clever writer. I admire I, her unreservedly. Mm -hmm. But she, she sees some of the social media phenomenon. And, you know, you can't dislike Popeye's fried chicken. It is better. It is better than everybody else's. Um, but you, here's why you're so wrong. Sam Sifton, now the glorious food editor of the New York Times, when he was restaurant critic, went and got a sandwich that... Burger King was doing that was a burger between two patties of fried chicken. Do you remember I that? I do very well, So as it was an all-protein, all-fried, except for the burger. 
uh, sandwich. He filmed himself eating it on a bench in the middle of Times Square, and he just looked iller and iller as he did it. But he certainly did it, <laughs> and he treated and it as a restaurant critic would do it. So, of course, Deborah loved it. You know, what's not to love about okay. Popeye's By the way, I, I think I can say clear. foie gras. I've been practicing silently. Perfect. Is, is the Popeye's chicken, chicken sandwich going to not save America then? I guess it's not really going to save America. I it's not going to save okay. America, but right. in the middle of just August doldrums, it certainly provided lots of copy. But it is economic indicator of how, how budgets are. Is that correct? I don't think it's particularly correct. It's that people like fast food and they like what's cheap. Okay. By the way, Arjun uh, corrects you, says it was the KFC double down that Sifton was eating in that thing. But here, let me read you from wow, Deborah Arjun first. Is fast. Here's He's this. Very fast. I sat wow. at a very table. Quick. This is beautiful. I sat at a table, she writes, Deborah first, and a beam of sunlight illuminated my tray. <laughs> I unwrapped the classic version. A shiny bun, squishy on top, and toasted where the surface meets a judicious slick of mayonnaise, a few pickle slices, crisp and tart, and then the white meat chicken encased in craggy golden batter, perfectly salty, perfectly fried, that texture, exclamation mark, that crunch, exclamation mark, the spicy version was even better, wow. says Deborah first. Now, by the way, Corby, we don't ask you this question often enough. Putting Popeyes aside, I have fried chicken about once a year. I believe I know where the best fried chicken in greater Boston is. Where do you think it is? The late Fontaine's, it doesn't exist anymore. You ever had it at Bisque in uh, Inman Square in Cambridge? It is unbelievable. No, I like it is affordable. Bisque like lobster bisque? B-I-S-Q, no, -S -S no U-E. Right. Okay. It's part of the Bergamo Gosh, bisque I'm thing. I'm glad to be it reminded of It is fabulous and affordable and Fabulous. Okay. We're talking to Corby Cummer, our uh, food guy. So uh, are virtual restaurants going to do to the restaurant industry what Amazon has done to virtually every industry? I mean, that appears to be the direction that things are going, no? It's a very interesting story in the New York Times about restaurateurs who have managed to overcome the incredible hurdles of making money using deliveries, which we'll go into a minute. But what are they doing? They're inventing restaurants that exist only online. What does it allow them to do? Save on all the workers like uh, Jose Andres's who were yeah. saying, you're not paying me tip minimum because I'm folding too many napkins and polishing too many silver and not in the face of, uh, in, of, uh, of uh, customers so I can't get my tips. All that's gone. They don't have to pay high rent. They can just have a windowless kitchen someplace where they are pumping out deliveries. And they can control their menu. They can have a really good looking menu. They can market themselves really well, <clears throat> saving all this money on labor and rent. They're doing just fine by inventing menus top to bottom, saying, here's my restaurant. Oh, by the way, no premises, no tables, no nothing, no sunshine, forget it. But we're going to get you good food delivered to your door. Given that there's the existence of these delivery services, great. More power to them. I think it's they've identified a, and a market opportunity and good for them. So I'm assuming, not knowing nothing about the industry except as a consumer and talking to you who are an expert in the industry, that the middle ground for a brick and mortar restaurant is unless you are wildly successful, you gotta like work like crazy to create a hybrid institution which allows you to serve food in your physical space and allows you to develop a huge virtual business as well or no? Well, the standard complaint when you hear a restaurateur is, these services gouge me, yeah, yeah. they lower me in their rankings or where they show customers if I'm not paying their ransom money 
for better placement. Their ransom money for better placement is my entire profit margin, but they've, they've addicted me to their volume that they give me. I can't afford to lose my margins anymore. I have to stop deliveries altogether or I'm going to go out of business. It's a terrible deal with the devil that most of these restaurateurs are making. So that I'm wrong, that essentially I'm wrong in suggesting that the only hope for, not again, not for the wildly popular restaurants, is to create this hybrid thing where they do do that. You're saying they can't afford to do that. No, what that? I'm saying is I think you either try to please your customers and have a neighborhood place that you figure out a way of making money on or you decide, the heck with that, I'm starting a virtual kitchen without staff, and I'm only going to a delivery model. I don't think there's an easy in-between. And what is that only delivery model doing, at least at, to date, to the brick-and-mortar restaurant? That I don't know, but I doubt it's doing particular harm to them that the rest of delivery uptake isn't doing them, which is to say people don't go to restaurants as much anymore. They just they stay don't? home. They just order it. Yeah, I think restaurant business is going down in a lot of cities because busy professionals want to have it delivered to their doors. Now, I think the larger question, which is dealt with in none of these discussions, is Uber is losing a ton of money. These delivery services aren't going to exist forever. This model isn't going to exist forever. But right now, while it's cheap for people to get food delivered, um, restaurant, restaurant owners are clever to find out this market gap. So what's happened to the old order the food and then go pick it up? Is that just all over now? Like it's pizzas, Chinese food, I do how that. many times have so you done that? So the only people I know who do it, and they do it, is when you're going home on the subway, you yeah. know you've got 35 minutes okay. in the subway, you go onto the app and you say, your restaurant's on my way home, I'm going to just get it, it's easier. But I think that largely people are going onto the apps and they're having it delivered at their delivered, houses. Yeah. Okay, so in light of the fact that I know nothing about the industry, why don't you keep hypothesizing about it, Jim? So I will. <laughs> so uh, assuming I was wrong uh, a minute ago, because I, I had forgotten about the huge costs of this delivery, and I've heard a bunch, not nearly as many as you, restaurateurs who we know complaining in just the way you mentioned about how it's killing their whole profit margin. Mm -hmm. Why don't restaurants get seizing on Marjorie's idea? Because I get takeout a lot, and I pick it up. I, li I like going to the restaurant and see what's going on and that you know, sort of thing. Uh, why don't they give me a discount? Uh, they don't have, I don't take up space in their restaurant. They don't want me to order through Uber Eats or DoorDash or something because it's going to croak them. As of the moment, I pay the exact same thing for to pick up. Uh, obviously, the tip is a little smaller than it would be if I was sitting at, uh, at a table. Why don't they give me 10% off? They still do far better than they would do if I ordered through one of these delivery services. But I'm not taking up space. I'm not costing them the same amount of money on wait staff and that sort of thing. Why aren't uh, restaurants doing that? First of all, you should suggest it to the places you regularly patronize and say, I'm taking my business away if no, you don't start do giving I me a 5 to 10% discount. I wouldn't do discount. that. But why aren't they doing that as a business proposition? I don't First of all, I don't think there are that many customers like you who are tempted to pick it up on their oh, own. Really? Okay. If you are getting it delivered, they're paying such a big percentage to the online service that has found them and delivered them the customer and the order that they're already losing a lot of money. Um, also, I think a lot of them would say, we are giving you a discount because you don't have to leave any tip at all, whereas you feel obligated if a server has come to you. So one last thing about this, which we have discussed with you in the past. The, 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 the services, the names of which escape me at the moment we discussed with you in the past, which 
provide in little wrappers every ingredient exactly what you need, theoretically with no waste. Meal they're, kits. Meal kits. They're not doing nearly as well as they were doing early on. Are, no, are they, no. They? They're another thing that is, I mean, there's still Blue Apron. It is, uh, last I heard, adding lots of potatoes and starches to its food so it could reduce food costs because uh -huh. it's not doing well. No, these are these fads that are largely driven by online access and the fact that people are buy people are buying everything online now having it delivered having it made um no and so i think that all these things we're watching our fads and you have to wait to see how long will it last okay so one last uh, thing i'm sorry to belabor this but Keep i'm going. actually obsessed with it because amongst my favorite place in the world are good restaurants this is, fried chicken. is amazon essentially put the bookstore industry out of business with some wonderful independent exceptions and that sort of thing. And a, a lot of us used to love to go and a bookstore. I mean, the same joy that, that you have sitting in a nice restaurant with a nice environment, a nice waitstaff was how you felt about being able to sit in a, in a nice soft chair at a, at a, at a good bookstore and sit and, and, and read or browse or whatever you did in 10 years. Are there going to be, is the same thing going to happen to, Physical restaurants are going to have, I don't know, 50% fewer because everybody's doing delivery a la Amazon coming to the... And why isn't Amazon doing food delivery since they're doing everything? I know they do uh, a grocery store delivery, but are, are restaurants going to disappear? No, they're not going to disappear because they're still a uh, special occasion, get rid of dishes, wanting to have a, a third place to speak, as Howard Schultz called Starbucks, needing some place to get out of home. All that will still go, but for the kind of utilitarian, we don't really have time to eat, we don't feel like cooking, right. that is delivery at home. We're talking to Corby Kummer, our food guy. Okay, so before you go, tell us about DoorDash and their tipping issues. So, you know, this is the perfect way to follow this uh, virtual restaurant phenomenon, which is to say the life of deliverers is hell. And we saw this two months ago when this fantastic New York Times reporter spent a couple of days doing nothing yeah. but meal delivery. And he took all kinds of videos, including truly horrifying ones taken from his like chest or helmet or whatever as he was biking through Manhattan and nearly killed every five seconds. And so they kept so running funny. them as six second Vimeo style videos when you were paging through the story giving you an instant ulcer as you were watching this. And then he went into what it was like to try to grab the food, try to get to the people who never looked you in the eye. Oh. They really opened their That's doors, horrible. they slipped it through, and he filmed them. And there was no, there was no need he had to mask their identity because they wouldn't even show their faces. So it was this horrible, dehumanizing experience. But one of the things he dinged DoorDash, which is where he worked, was saying, hey, those guys have tipped me. Who's keeping the tip? You, DoorDash. It's not going to me because you guaranteed me a certain minimum. It is higher than the competition for Uber, but you're pocketing the tip. And it turned out to be a complicated matter because he got such bad publicity. He caused such bad publicity for DoorDash. They changed their policy. But what did they do? They lowered their guaranteed minimum, and a lot oh. of riders were really angry at this Times reporter. I think it's probably better in the long run. I haven't done the economics, and I think most of the really angry employees were far more efficient than this poor schlemiel of a reporter <laughs> possibly could be words. trying to get all of these places delivered. So is it not Ill illegal to, if something is designated as a tip, can the employer just 
capture that and consider it part of his or her income rather than the income of, I mean, tip means something in, under state laws, obviously. Yeah, it means different things to every state, which is why we were talking about Jose Andres getting dinged. Certain people can get tips and certain people can't. No, it sounded blatantly illegal, but I think that they had this legal loophole because they were guaranteeing a higher than minimum rate for the delivery in the beginning. Corby, it's nice to see you. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Corby Kummer, as always. A lot always. of passion there. A lot of passion. A lot of passion. That's right. Corby joins us every week. He's passionately executive director of the Food and Society Policy Program at the Aspen Institute. He's a senior editor at The Atlantic, and he's just gone back to school as a senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition, Science, and Policy. Thanks a lot, Corby. By the way, I embarrassed myself, so let me say it clearly. Foie gras is how you say it. Foie gras. That was humiliating. It was humiliating. Thank I you. Can't I appreciate say it that. Though. You just did. I, Foie, well, I can't say it fast. Say it. Foie gras. That's right. Yeah. We're done. All right. Let's move on. Up next, Ali Narani is here to go over the latest developments of the Trump administration's immigration crackdown. Uh, we're going to talk about the kids that may or may not be staying in hospitals with very dread diseases they can't get uh, cured in their own country and a bunch of other stuff. Listen to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. We are broadcasting live from the WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. I'm 